0: Well, 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 my goodness, this is super, super interesting. On May the 10th, 2023, we released an episode, the title of which was OSA in Pregnancy, Time to Screen. And in this episode, we reviewed the latest data on obstructive sleep apnea and how it really is tied to some adverse perinatal outcomes, mainly hypertensive disorders of pregnancy and gestational diabetes. And that's because of the oxidative stress and the physiological stress that OCA brings during pregnancy. All right, that was May the 10th. Well, fast forward to today, which is July the 6th, and ACOG in the Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology just released ahead of print a new consensus statement that it seems we were a little bit ahead of the curve on. Remember, we released our kind of review on sleep apnea and pregnancy on May the 10th, and now on July the 6th, this new consensus statement is being released the consensus statement title is, the Society of Anesthesia and Sleep Medicine and the Society for Obstetric Anesthesia and Perinatology Consensus Guideline on the Screening, Diagnosis, and Treatment of, you guessed it, Obstructive Sleep Apnea in Pregnancy. Wow, so we actually covered this by ourselves two months Ahead of this consensus statement coming out. So in this episode, we're gonna cover some brief highlights, not to redo our previous episode, because we already did that on May the 10th. So you gotta go back and listen to that episode as a as a primer or as a follow-up to this one, all right? But in this episode, I'm gonna give you the quick highlights of what the Society of Anesthesia and Sleep Medicine and SOAP, that's the Society of Obstetric Anesthesia and Perinatology, has to say about screening, diagnosis, and treatment of obstructive sleep apnea during pregnancy. Medicine moves real fast. We're here to help us all keep up the pace. This is Clinical Pearls. All right, podcast family. I just finished clinic not long ago, so I'm still here at the office. Uh, my poor family, I mean, I got to tell you, they put up with so much. I I'm, If I'm not recording something, then I'm doing something for some peer review thing or some darn research project. Thankfully, I love it. Um, and thankfully, my family lets me do what I love to do. But I do feel bad sometimes. Anyway, I promise I am going to get home in just a minute. But I was about to wrap things up and put everything away. And of course, I get this little ding. I get my little alert. I'm like, oh, something was added to the Green Journal. Um, and somebody actually sent it to me. They're like, hey, take a look at this because you actually talked about this before. So of course, I can't resist, right? Uh, I got to look at it. So when I see the title, right? Society of Anesthesia and Sleep Medicine and the Society of Obstetric Anesthesia and Perinatology Consensus Guidelines for screening, diagnosis, and treatment of obstructive sleep apnea. My first thought was, um, uh-oh, I hope I didn't give out wrong info. <laughs> I mean, honestly, right? That's our, that's our whole negativity bias. Um, I had that, that, the, the whole negativity bias thing is also what I talked about. That's my TEDx. So if you look on, on uh, Hector Choppa, uh, TEDx, uh, from TAMU, you'll see that, but there is actually something called the negativity bias, and automatically you go to the worst, right? Because I hate to say this, but at heart, all of us at some degree uh, have some degree of of, of pessimism, and just the way it is. So I'm like, oh my gosh, maybe I gave out wrong info just like two months ago. Uh, because I said, you know, based on, on the data, maybe we should be definitely be screening for OCA, especially in, in at risk individuals. So I'm like, oh my gosh, I've got to read this thing. So yeah, I sat here after clinic and read this entire document, which is pretty darn lengthy. And it's also really, really good. I'm also a fan of soap. I like them. Remember that's the society of obstetric anesthesia and perinatology. They do great stuff. We also talked about them in our malignant hyperthermia episode. But well, anyway, I finished uh, reviewing the document and I was like, oh my goodness, that's exactly what we stated in our previous podcast uh, as an independent, uh, you know, investigation. So I'm glad that we were kind of in the same line of thought. That's good because if I was not, I was going to have to like issue a retraction. Like, oh my gosh, forget what I just told you on May the 10th. But that's actually not the case. But there are some caveats here. Now, if you remember or not, I I think that initial title uh, and topic that we did on May the 10th was brought up by a podcast listener uh, and said, Hey, should we be screening for this or not? And and so we we poured into the data. I'm like, You know, especially in high risk individuals, uh, the answer is yes. Uh, And so we're going to get into that because. Uh, We were definitely hit some major concepts back in May the 10th. That's in this consensus statement. So we're going to cover those three main questions. Okay. Should we screen for this? And the answer is yes and no. And I'm going to explain what I mean for that. Second thing is, is there a great way to diagnose this? And there is a guideline for that. And then what is the treatment? And there's only one official treatment that that that's that seems to have efficacy for here but you got to know why you're treating them all right and i'm gonna explain that in a minute as well but anyway so let's get right to this consensus statement that just came out on july the 6th 2023 <music> obstructive sleep apnea you know that thing is on the rise and it's on the rise because it's directly in parallel and in a response to another big issue that we've talked about many many times and what is that well, that's the rising BMI rate, right? The rising uh, rate of obesity in, in the U.S. And I know BMI is kind of falling out of favor. That may change. I get that. But the idea is we, we seem to be getting slightly heavier, and that kind of sucks. I received a message today um, through our Facebook page from somebody in Australia, uh, Steve. He's a, he's a podcast family member. And I wonder if this is the same issue there, if it's just U.S. I hope it's global and not just us, but it is what it is. So, Steve, if you're listening from Australia, um, ugh, I hate to say that, but man, over here in the West and the U.S., our BMIs are expanding, and that's not good. But as all you know, there are multiple studies that have highlighted this increased morbidity with OCA And that's not just in pregnancy, but that's for overall health wellness in general. Obstructive sleep apnea has been associated with severe cardiovascular morbidity in national and population-based samples. Now, regarding OSA and pregnancy, it's really been associated with two specific complications of pregnancy, hypertensive disorders of pregnancy and gestational diabetes. That's been demonstrated in several small prospective studies and even some meta-analyses and some large retrospective databases have shown the same thing, all right? So hypertensive disorders and gestational diabetes, that's the correlation here, that's the the tie-in with OCA. Those are the two pregnancy issues that most people get. They're like, all right, I get that. That's not controversial. But there is a bunch of controversial stuff that's still kind of questionable between OSA and pregnancy. Things like fetal heart rate abnormalities, fetal growth restriction, a link to preterm birth, APGAR scores, and low birth weight have all shown contradictory info, all right? So maybe, maybe not, unclear. And there's also some conflicting data related to abnormality adverse fetal outcomes like congenital anomalies, large for gestational age, or shortened telomere length. That's not good, all right? I think we covered that on May the 10th. But again, these have not been reproduced in all studies. So hypertensive disorders in pregnancy and gestational diabetes, those are kind of like, yeah, I I think there's something there with the stress, physiological stress of obstructive sleep apnea, and the rest may or may not be a consequence of the condition. All right, podcast family, now remember that this is not an RCT, this is a consensus opinion. That means that delegates or representatives from these different societies like the Society of Anesthesia or the Society of Obstetric Anesthesia and Perinatology, these members came together, actually those 11 of them, and reviewed all of the data and said, hey, where's the data strongest and is there, can we reach a consensus about what to do? All right, so this is why this falls under a consensus. Uh, opinion or a consensus guideline. The first question that these experts sought to answer is: hey, should we do universal screening for this or not? All right, should we even screen for this? And if we do, do we do it for everybody-that's universal screen-or for those with specific high-risk markers? I'll explain that in a minute. And the answer, of course, is yes and no. So, no, you should not universally screen for this condition across the spectrum. In other words, there just wasn't enough data. We know that it's a problem, but there's probably not enough data to screen universally all pregnant women, all right? So that's the first thing they came up with. So no, probably not necessary to do this on a universal level. However, they did recommend screening pregnant women who had obesity. Now, even though, in the guideline goes into this, it's unclear where to put that that marker. Is it a BMI of, is it 28? Is it 30? Is it uh, 34? Knowing that there's no real clear data on that, in other words, which class of obesity to start screening for this, they kind of left it at a BMI of 30 or more, all right? So as the authors state, quote, There was insufficient evidence to suggest a particular BMI at which OSA risk markedly increases. But the guideline committee agreed that in absence of such data, screening all pregnant women with class one obesity, that's a BMI of 30 or higher, uh, when they're in the first or second trimester is a reasonable approach. All right. Now, notice we said in the first or second trimester, and the reason is, man, if you find somebody in the third trimester and they have a BMI above 30, well, it's probably too late. In in other words, you can offer them some treatment, but at at that point, the stress, the physiological stress of pregnancy likely has already taken over. It's just like the the whole issue with low-dose aspirin, right? Remember that that's best practice is to start that ideally before 16 weeks. Uh, with the range of 12 weeks up to about 28. So if you see somebody for the first time at 35 weeks and you tell them, hey, I really want you to start, you know, low dose aspirin for a preeclampsia prevention, uh, it's probably not gonna do anything. It's too late at that point. Well, that's the same kind of reasoning here with uh, OSA screening in obesity, in class one obesity or higher in the first or second trimester, just because in the third trimester, you're likely too late uh, to have any real, uh, to really have any real effect. All right, everyone. So that's the first clinical pearl. Should we universally screen? Probably insufficient data to do that. However, screening those with a BMI of 30 or more. Yeah, that that's pretty reasonable. Okay, now you can screen everybody, that's okay. But you're going to have more uh, sensitivity, more specificity with a BMI of 30 or more. But there is another group of individuals where screening for OSA is actually recommended based on this consensus opinion. According to these authors, quote, we suggest OSA screening for pregnant women with hypertensive disorders of pregnancy or diabetes in the current pregnancy or a prior pregnancy. And they go on to say, quote, although the potential benefits outweigh the risks, its usefulness is actually not well-established, end quote. In other words, look, we know because OSA is linked to these two potential comorbid conditions, hypertensive disorders of pregnancy and prior pregnancy issues uh, of hypertensive disorder or gestational diabetes, then consider screening these women for OSA, especially if you're in the first or second trimester. All right. So in terms of universal screen, probably not. But those with class one uh, obesity, that's a yes. And then those who have current or prior hypertensive disorders of pregnancy or diabetes, they say, yeah, we kind of suggest that you do that. Now, remember, words here mean something, okay? So when they say, we, we do recommend. That's a pretty strong word. And then when they say suggest, it's like, yeah, yeah, you could do it. So remember, these words actually do mean something. And, and trust me, we said on I sit on, on the OB, obstetric Care Consensus Committee, and it's an honor to do that. I'm, I'm thankful that somebody given me the chance to do that. But they agonize over these words. You know, do we really recommend or do we suggest? So just to be clear, They suggest screening for people with obesity, that's a a BMI of 30 or more for OSA, and they also suggest screening for this in women with hypertensive disorders of pregnancy or diabetes in the index or prior pregnancy. Okay, moving on. Now, there is another group that the consensus experts do not recommend screening for, all right? So we already got the do not screen universally. They suggested screening for obesity in those with hypertension or those with a history of gestational diabetes in a past or current pregnancy, if they're in the first or second trimester. But they also state, quote, we do not recommend OSA screening of pregnant women with advanced maternal age who have no other risk factors. All right, so that's the direct quote from this consensus statement. So just because they're over age 35 or above, um, don't use that as a screen if that's the only issue. Okay, so advanced maternal age or 35 and above, that's not a standalone indication for screening for OSA. I just texted one of our sound guys. I'm like, hey, man, I'm in the clinic. I'm going to throw off a quick podcast. Please put this thing together and try to take away some of the ambient noise. And, of course, I get the message back, man, you're killing me. <laughs> Look, it's what we do. They signed up to help, and so I'm using the help, all right? But, yeah, that's that's all I got. That's my text back, man, you're killing me. Well, I'm assuming that's said out of love. All right, keep going. So <laughs> look, I'm trying to get out of here. I'm trying to get home. Uh, anyway, here's another thing about screening, all right? Because as we've already mentioned, screening, the timing of this is a big deal because while you're more likely to find women, it's true in the third trimester because now you've got the expanding uterus uh, and obesity, which is a, a, a compounding factor here. It's unclear if, if if doing something as an intervention that late, as we've already discussed, does anything, all right? So timing of this screening, pregnancy does matter. Now, ideally, you'd screen this before they get pregnant, but this consensus statement does state, quote, we recommend that OSA screening of pregnant women at high risk for OSA be done between the first and second trimester. And that's defined between six weeks and zero days and 28 weeks and six days. So right at the start of the third trimester. Okay, I get that fine. We know when to screen for and who to screen for this. But what should we use to screen for it? I mean, how, how do we do that? So let's cover that next. All right. So I have to tell you, it's obviously after five, it's actually after six. I'm not going to tell you what time it actually is because it's depressing for myself. But anyway, I got to tell you in a medical clinic, when you're by yourself after 6pm, it's super creepy. Like I'm kind of wigged out. I need to stop watching scary movies because uh, it's kind of wiggy. Uh, I got all the lights on Uh, anyway, and I'm a grown man. I'm telling you, it's wiggy when you're by yourself in the dark. All right, so let's go for screening. So there's a couple of uh, screening questionnaires. I think we covered this on May the 10th. There's like the Berlin questionnaire. There's the stop bang questionnaire. The problem is none of those have specifically been validated for pregnancy. So that's one of the catches is, well, how do you screen for this? Well, the easiest is just to ask either the patient or a family member if they sleep with the patient. Um, hey, does this person wake up um, at night? Do they have bad snoring? Are they sleepy throughout the day? It's just kind of directed uh, questioning. Something like the stop bang questionnaire that we talked about on May 10th, as these experts state in this new consensus statement, quote, is a poor predictor of OSA status in pregnant women. Therefore, we recommend that it should not be used as a screening tool for OSA in that population, end quote. All right. Well, then there's other things, like there's one called the Epworth sleeping scale, and that's also not validated in pregnancy. They're like, well, great. Okay, I I know what not to use. Well, what what am I supposed to use? And, And that's one of the tough things is it's unclear what the best screening tool is, but these consensus experts do state, quote, we suggest that the published pregnancy-specific OSA screening criteria proposed by FACO et al. be considered as the screening tool for OSA in pregnant women, but it performs suboptimally in populations at high risk for OSA, End quote. So, isn't that weird? I mean, they're like, hey, use this one, but it doesn't seem to work that well crazy. I mean, I read that directly from the bulletin. So the short answer is it's unclear what the best way to screen pregnant women is for this. And it may be just kind of directed uh, asking and, you know, targeted questioning, making it super simple because all of the scales that are out there are, are just not very good predictors of OSA in pregnancy. But it seems that if you're going to use one, the one published by FACO et al. and you've got to go again to the consensus opinion to actually look at that one, uh, maybe one to, to consider. We are moving on to the actual diagnosis of OSA in pregnant individuals. And we covered some of this in the May 10th episode that traditionally you had to send patients to a sleep lab and they had monitoring and they had polysomnography. To, to kind of put the you know the monitors on and take a look at brain waves and see what the CO2 monitors were, uh, and that's super not practical. Okay, now that is kind of like the best to do. That's okay, you can do that. However, these experts state that look, there are some home portable monitoring kits and devices that have been used, um, and, and that may provide some helpful information. So knowing that there's nothing perfect and even the portable monitoring devices have some issues, the experts say, quote, we suggest that out of center, in other words, home sleep apnea testing could be a reasonable diagnostic tool for OSA in pregnant individuals, end quote. And the reason that they do that is because, look, we don't have any stronger data one way or the other. It's an insurance issue to get somebody to go stay at a sleep uh, you know, sleep center. And next, well, who really wants to do that? I mean, you got to be hooked up to monitors and stuff. It's just kind of weird. But again, I'm all for, I think screening by itself is, is is a great tool. And then you can go on to definitive testing, but obviously if the patient has a BMI of 40 and they've got a, you know, big history of snoring and, and, and they wake up multiple times during the night, I mean, that's kind of historical Uh, diagnosis of OCA and that's okay. But remember that the gold standard still must be done in a sleep lab, but there's a lot of flexibility here. There is a special mention of one little tool that's super easy to use. You can pick it up at your neighborhood pharmacy, but that's not recommended, all right? Initially, it sounds like a great idea, but they actually do not recommend using this little uh, over-the-counter tool as a diagnostic method for OSA, all right? And the reason is there's there's very little to no data on its use in pregnant individuals, and there's a lot of huge... Uh, a variation in results. All right. So these experts state, "quote We do not recommend that overnight pulse ox be used as a diagnostic tool for OSA in pregnant women." End quote. So do not use overnight pulse ox. It seems great, super easy, uh, super tempting to use. But right now, there's just not enough data, and there's a lot of variability um, with with using pulse ox in pregnancy. So yeah, good idea, but no. I got to get home. I think my wife's going to change the locks if I don't get home soon. Uh, So let's end this very quickly with treatment of obstructive sleep apnea and pregnancy. And I've got to say I'm very thankful because I felt a little validated that we mentioned this on our May 10th. Uh, episode. Because so when I read this, I was like, "Oh man, did, did I get that wrong again?" I, I automatically went to, "Oof, I'm gonna have to issue a retraction." But no, it, I mean, it, it it is what it is. I mean, there there is only one real treatment of OSA in pregnancy, and that's of course, uh, it's traditional CPAP. All right but you gotta know why you're doing this. You're, you're really doing this to reduce the markers of cardiovascular stress and metabolic risk, okay? Uh, and, and the data that that's really effective in pregnant individuals is, is, is not there. So the question is, well, we offer a treatment that's just not validated. Now, wait a minute, we know that CPAP works and everybody else, so there's no reason that it wouldn't work in pregnancy, but, but if you're looking for a robust set of evidence, it's just not there. But because there is vast evidence that OSA does have some reduction in in some overall health complications, then they say, yeah, it seems to be validated. So just to be clear, there is no evidence that CPAP therapy is harmful in pregnancy. I'm going to say that again. There is no evidence that CPAP therapy is harmful in pregnancy. And even though there's limits in, in the data, the authors state, quote, the usefulness of OSA treatment on markers of cardiovascular and metabolic risk in pregnant women is unknown, but the potential benefit of CPAP therapy on patients with OSA is thought to outweigh the risk, and CPAP is recommended, end quote. Remember, this is why this is a consensus guideline, right? So these people all got together, looked at the data and said, are we going to cause some kind of abruption or, or, or weird problem with CPAP? And of course, the answer is No. Uh, And can it potentially help? The answer is yes. So sometimes you just got to go with that. Now, hopefully, as this awareness of of OSA and pregnancy comes to the the, uh, front light, these trials will be better conducted. Because remember, until this time, there really wasn't a formal guideline on it. So yeah, this is pretty cool. All right, podcast families, we get ready to wrap this up here. I want to be very clear about this. The recommendation to treat OSA in pregnancy with CPAP is for overall person wellness, all right, physiological improvement, just overall in their health, not because it's going to improve some kind of pregnancy condition. So if a patient asks, hey, am I going to improve the baby's condition by doing CPAP? It sounds like it would, but the data is not there, all right? So just because the data isn't there doesn't mean that that's not possible. We just, It means the data is not there. So to be very clear, I'm not, I'm, I'm not saying to do CPAP because somehow you're going to have drastic improvements in fetal and neonatal outcomes. We don't know that yet. But it is recommended because the harm is so low to nil and the potential benefit seems to be there. As stated by these authors in this consensus guideline, quote, The usefulness of treatment of OSA on fetal and neonatal outcomes is unknown. Thus, treatment for this indication alone is not recommended, end quote. All right, podcast family, that brings us to a wrap. Yeah, there's a lot of gaps here in the data. Yes, there's a lot of room to improve. And we've got big areas of research that need to be done in this population, especially as our BMIs are getting bigger. And I say that as I plan to stop by like, burger king on the way home uh by the way not a sponsor okay so that wraps up this new impromptu consensus statement that was released today on july the 6th and i'm gonna get home before my family disowns me as always we're thankful for you we're glad you're part of our podcast community and we'll see you on another episode of clinical pearls